Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this time today to be able to come together as a family. Um, Father, we thank you for your word, uh, that, the gift that you've given us in Scripture. Father, today I just pray that you will overcome my limitations and that you will speak to us directly uh, through the Holy Spirit, Father. And this will be a, a time of worship and praise for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is uh, Randy Williamson. I'm one of the elders here. Um, if this is your first time at Midlands, first of all, welcome. Second, good news, I am not the normal pastor. <laughs> so please come back. Um, it gets better. Uh, but um, a couple weeks back, Matt, who is our regular teaching pastor, asked me if I would be willing to um, teach on one of the Psalms. So my first thought was, okay, there's 150 of them. So surely he's going to give me one that I can say I'm not familiar with. <laughs> and he said, 23rd Psalm. So that blew that plan out the window because it's the most famous Psalm. And even if you aren't a believer or haven't been in church at all, you probably are familiar with the words of that Psalm. Um, so my second plan was, all right, what, what Sunday? Because we have a lot of stuff going on family-wise. And last Sunday, Sierra our last weekend, Sierra graduated from high school and we had everybody in town. I'm like, oh, that'd be a great reason not to do it. Um, and so he said, uh, June the 11th. And so I said, let me call Leanne. Um, well, here I am because uh, we weren't going anywhere. So it worked out um, for Matt and for, that's, maybe that's just it. It just worked out for Matt because he's not able to be here today. But um, he kind of gave you an introduction to the Psalms last week, and it's, it's a songbook, 150 songs. And, um, you know, music is, is pretty personal. You know, we all have our own favorite types, you know, our genres that we really like. And, uh, um, and I, I confess, I'm one of those people that I'm of the age where I think that music that came out like after I got out of college or maybe out of my 20s, it's just not that good. You know, I'm one of those. Uh, and I think there are a lot of people that are kind of like that. Uh, in my case, it's, it's actually true. Um, <laughs> but uh, we kind of all have our types of music. And we get to that point, a lot of us in life, where we think, what is this new stuff? Like, what's, I don't get it. Because I don't, I don't listen to the radio that much anymore. And, um, but when I do listen to something, I'll hear a song maybe I haven't heard in 10 or 15 years, but it was a song that like really uh, impacted me, and I, I can sing the words, even when I haven't heard it in forever. So I have a theory on why uh, crotchety old dudes think that way, um, because when, you, when you're growing up, you know, middle school, high school, college, and you're becoming you, um, the songs that you listen to in a big part are things that happened, they remind you of events in your life. They remind you of special times, good and bad times, but significant events in your life. And the longer you listen to those same songs, the more opportunity there is for you to like, have those songs remind you of something in your life. So um, you probably heard the phrase used that like, there, there are tunes that I listened to when I was middle school, high school, even college, that are kind of like the soundtrack of my life. And they're very personal to me. And I used to be one of those guys where I would tell my friends, hey, listen to this song, it's great. And they would listen to it and say, eh, eh, it's not that good. Um, 
but it was the song and the words especially that really um, mean something to me. Uh, if you know me, and for you read my bio when we were um, uh, talking about being an elder, and I'm, I'm an Andrew Peterson fan, but I actually like his words as much or more than his music. Uh, and he's written books too, so if you haven't read his books, I encourage you to do that. But it's the words that really touch me and, and, and really become my favorites. So when you think about the Psalms, and they weren't all written by David, but a majority of them were actually written by David, and they're very personal. And so the Psalms are they're part of the soundtrack of David's life. And even more so than if you just listen. Like, I've never written a song. I'm not gifted in that way. Some of y'all are. Um, but you write a song, and it's very personal, and you're kind of pouring your heart out in the words. And so when you look at this psalm, it's very personal, but it's a very comforting psalm. And it's interesting. We don't really know like what order they were written in, but they were placed in Scripture in a specific order. And this psalm, Psalm 23 which is a very comforting psalm, comes right after Psalm 22, which starts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is what Jesus said on the cross. So to go from that one extreme of almost just hopelessness, like God, where are you? To, to this one. Uh, this is a super encouraging psalm. Charles Spurgeon, um, a great pastor from the 1800s in England, he called this the pearl of the Psalms. So of all the 150, I, I am thankful that Matt didn't ask me to preach on 119. <laughs> we'd be here for a couple of days. Um, but when you think about this and you think of how David has gone from this point of almost hopelessness of, God, where are you? Why am I going through these things to, wait a minute, here's Psalm 23, and here's the answer to that. So let's dig into it. Um, I encourage you to get out your Bibles. And um, I'd like to start out just by reading through it one time. Um, and I have to force myself to read it because I'm, I'm reading it out of the uh, English Standard Version. And I am of a certain age where when I memorized Psalms, uh, it, it sounded a little more fancy. It was the King James Version. And I literally learned it in this building, uh, memorized it. Um, so I have to make myself not say maketh and runneth over and those kind of things. So um, why don't you stand as we read God's word? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You can be seated. All right, let's dig into this. Um, how many of y'all like to read, big readers? Are, are any of you, and it's okay to confess this, are any of you one of those types that like immediately goes to the back of the book? Does, does anybody do that? Is anybody going to confess that? I don't. Like I'm so weird about it. When I get to the end of the book, I like take special caution <laughs> so that I don't accidentally see what's on the last page or two because I don't want to know. 
Um, I want to be pleasantly surprised or extremely disappointed if the book's not that good. <laughs> so, but if you're one of those, and it's okay if you didn't confess this, but if you're one of those that likes the end of the story immediately, then that's another reason to like this song. Because it tells you in the first five words what this whole thing is about. The first five words are, the Lord is my shepherd. David, who is king, is saying that the Lord, my Lord, is my shepherd. So what do these first five words tell us? Well, the first ones are the Lord, and it's a capital L. He is not talking about some earthly Lord uh, or someone that is his master. He's talking about God. It's very, very clear. The next word is is, a little short, tiny word that tells us a couple things. The first is, that's present tense. Like David's not saying, you know, he used to be my God, or I hope one day maybe he'll be my God. He's like, he's my God. And I told you I learned this psalm when I was a little boy, and I learned it in present tense because it was true. Today we read it, and it's in present tense because it's today. If I live to be 100 and Jesus doesn't return before then, and I read it, it'll be present tense then. God is not our shepherd sometime or when it's convenient for him or only when we want him to be. He is our shepherd all the time. The other thing about that little word is it's a very definitive statement because David didn't say, I hope so, or if. Um, and I grew up, I grew up here, grew up in West Columbia. I went to uh, a grammar school that they tore down right after I got out of fifth grade. That's like three blocks from here. And I went to Northside Middle School, which is not the one that exists now. It's the old one that's right off of Jarvis Clapham Boulevard. But um, middle school, middle school was a troubling time for a lot of people. Um, but it's kind of like when you start realizing that, that girls aren't so yucky and guys aren't, they maybe still have cooties, but it's not as bad as you thought. So you're, you're thinking and starting to notice the, the opposite sex. And I remember in middle school, it was this thing, and it could have just been a north side thing, but it probably wasn't. But there would be notes passed, and it would say, do you like me? Check one. Yes, no, maybe. <laughs> it's like, why was that one on there? What does that even mean? Um, that's not an answer. <laughs> it doesn't tell us anything. So David's not saying that the Lord may be my shepherd. He's given us a definitive answer. The Lord is my shepherd. And that next word, my, that's a very personal word. David's saying, the Lord cares for me. He's saying, I'm not the only one he cares for, but he cares specifically for me and loves me. So it's a personal relationship there between David and his shepherd, the good shepherd, the Lord. So how does David know that the Lord is his shepherd? And that's what the rest of Psalm 23 tells us. So the next part of that first verse is, I shall not want. Now that statement, we live in a very materialistic society 
And there are times when we want stuff, right? Just different things that we would like to have. What he's saying here is, I don't have any needs. The shepherd, the good shepherd is providing everything that I need abundantly. Um, we actually read uh, John chapter 10, and I'm going to read that at the very end actually again. But in John 10, it actually gives six characteristics of Jesus' sheep, his people. And here they are. First of all, they know their shepherd. Second, they know his voice. Third, they hear him calling them each by their own name. Fifth, they, or fourth, they love him. Fifth, they trust him. And number six, they follow him. So I was trying to think of a way to kind of an example or an illustration of that. Uh, so bear with me because I've got a bunch of illustrations here and you're going to be thinking, where is he going with these things? I actually have points. They may not make any sense, but they did to me. Um, but I want to tell you a story about Leanne's dad and his horse. Leanne's dad has a horse named Bo. He used to have three horses, but two of them were crazy. So he got rid of them. But Bo, Bo is like a 1,500-pound dog. Like when Leanne's dad, he stays down in the holler uh, at the bottom of the mountain. So there's pasture um, and it's kind of all over the place. And when, dad, when her dad drives up, gets down there, um, doesn't matter where Bo is. Like you, don't, you won't see him necessarily, but he'll come running because her dad will uh, yell his name and Bo knows who his shepherd is. And so he'll come running. Um, and her dad, you know, takes care of him, um, nourishes him. He also, probably the main reason that he runs is that's the time of day where Bo doesn't have to eat the grass because he's going to give him some sweet feed. And that's like horse candy. Uh, it is, I've never had it, but, but he, he appears to be very, uh, very much enjoying himself when, when Leanne's dad feeds him that. So when you think about that, I shall not want. Bo didn't have any wants. There's this big trough where his water is that's always full and always clean. Uh, he has a stable slash barn shelter that he can get in out of the elements if he needs to. Uh, Leanne's dad is down there every day. There are times when I have taken care of him. He's not like, he doesn't run up to me. <laughs> um, but he knows if he wants some food, then if I'm heading to the barn, he better, he better follow me. But Leanne's dad is like his good shepherd. And Bo doesn't have any, he doesn't have any wants. He is taken care of. So um, to think about that, because we, there are a lot of things that may, we may think we need, but we don't. But we need the Lord. And he provides everything else that we need. In verse 2, it says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Now, when I read those verses, it kind of a couple images come to mind. Um, when I think of green pastures, I think of lush and green and uh, thick. And uh, I, uh, when we're traveling up to the upstate, a lot of times we don't take the interstate just because there's too many cars. And I'd rather see pretty scenery out in the country. And there's, if you've ever gone down 378, um, just west of the town of Saluda, heading toward Greenwood, it goes right in the middle of this pasture land, and it's lush and green year-round. It's fescue and some other grasses there, and it's just gorgeous. 
it's a really, really pretty place. But y'all probably, in your mind, of thinking of other places you've seen that are just beautiful green pastures. Um, and I also think about um, times where I've been backpacking. And uh, I don't know if any of y'all have gone. You know where Shining Rock Wilderness is up in North Carolina? Nobody's been there. Okay. Totally fine. Um, it's up uh, near Brevard, Waynesville, that area. Um, it's a really neat place to go backpacking. Well, when you're backpacking and you've got 70 pounds on your back and you're trudging along for 10 or 15 miles, there's this place that you get to on Shining Rock Wilderness Trail that's it's called a bald. It's a high top of a mountain where there are no trees. It's just grass. And one time years ago, some buddies of mine and I were hiking and we had been out for probably four or five days at this point. And, um, and we broke out of the woods into this green pasture. And we were exhausted and we literally laid down to just get the backpack off of our back, kick our hiking boots off and just kind of relax and enjoy. And it's interesting, he, he says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Because sometimes God's got to force us to settle down a little bit and relax and trust him a little bit. Like if you're a sheep and you, you're defenseless and you've got all these animals that are after you, you don't really want to lay down and, and make yourself even more defenseless unless you have a good shepherd there that's going to take care of you and protect you. So I thought about those kind of things. And then Hart sent me a video uh, Friday, I think it was. Uh, it was a clip, and it was a guy teaching about green pastures in the Negev. And the Negev is a desert. Uh, it's actually the southern half of modern-day Israel. It's where Abraham and Isaac, you know, when they were nomadic, they would roam around there. And if you've ever seen a picture of it, there's no green pastures there. It's rock. Um, uh, David um, Horde and I were with a group of guys backpacking through Morocco. Um, 2001, I think it was. And we're in this area, and there's nothing green. Like, and we see these sheep like on the side of a mountain. I'm like, what are they eating? And it was like that video. Are they, eat, are they eating rocks? <laughs> what's, what's going on? Because the only green we saw was down in the valleys, little ribbons of green that followed the streams. And there was all kind of green stuff in those valleys. It was the Reef Mountains, by the way, which is where... A certain thing is named after. Um, so, but no, we did not participate in that. Uh, but this story, this video talks about the green pastures in the Negev where shepherds are leading their flocks because it doesn't rain, it's very arid, but they get moisture off of the Mediterranean Sea. And so the moisture will cling to the rocks. And even though it doesn't grow a lot, there will be a little sprout of grass here at that rock and there at that rock and there at that rock. And so the shepherd, the good shepherd, leads his flock through this seemingly barren land and helps him to find the only green pasture there is. And sometimes, sometimes in life, it's both ways. Sometimes we really feel like we're in a luscious green pasture, but sometimes we feel like we're in that rocky hillside and God has to show us it's actually not as bad because I'm with you and I will get you through this. So that's the green pastures part. And then it said, he leads me beside still waters. Um, the Hebrew phrase that's translated here, still waters, is actually uh, literally 
waters of rest. And so I was trying to think, well, how can I, what would be a good way to explain that? Because I think about, you know, a little brook that's just flowing, and the little sheep come and stick their mouths in there and get a little, little, little uh, sip of water, and that's a good, pretty, you know, la la, that's a nice little, uh, almost like a cartoon. Um, then I thought about when you appreciate still waters, and it's after you've gone through something that was pretty rough. Um, Chattooga River, anybody been to the Chattooga River? Thank you. Y'all need to get out more. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of stuff to do around here. The Chattooga River is probably the, the premier whitewater river in the southeast. Um, it's on the border. It actually starts in North Carolina, and then it forms the border of South Carolina and Georgia. And it's a really cool river. It's, there's, um, it's divided uh, uh, into four sections. It's not divided. It's just one river. <laughs> but we have divided it into four sections. The first two, you're not supposed to raft or anything. You backpack through there. Section three and section four, that's where people go when they whitewater raft. And they kayak. And they canoe. Um, at the very end of section three, there is a rapid called Bull Sluice. And uh, years ago, I was on a rafting trip. And when you raft, you kind of sit on the edge of the raft and you're leaning out and paddling. Well, what happened was we came through Bull Sluice and Bull Sluice drops down, has one fall, and then there's a hydraulic where the water is kind of folding back in on itself. And then it goes to another fall. Well, we hit off the first fall, bounced up, and I shot out of the raft. And knowing a little bit about hydraulics, I mean, a hydraulic jump is, is pretty dangerous. One of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to get caught in it and just kind of bob there until somebody gets you out, or if it's the worst case scenario, it's going to suck you down. And there's, there are a number of people that have drowned on the Chattooga River at Bull Sluice and other places because they've been caught in a hydraulic. And it'll, it'll literally pull you under and keep you there. So um, thankfully, there was a raft right behind us. So we came through. I popped out. I had on a life vest. The guy at the following raft reached over and literally just grabbed onto me and pulled me through. And there was a little pool area, still waters at the bottom of this. So got out of that. So a little bit of a panic. It was a rough, rough patch, but someone actually grabbed me and brought me through the rest of that. Now, if you ever go on Jatuga, here's a little tip for you. Section three ends at Highway 76. Bull Sluice is just upstream from that. If, bull, if you go through Bull Sluice and it bothers you, get out at Highway 76 because Bull Sluice is the first of seven Class 4 or higher rated rapids. And they got really cool names like Sockum Dog and Jawbone and cra you know, Cracking the Rock and Screaming Left Turn. I mean, things that are really nice. There's Deliverance Rock, if, if you're familiar with that movie. Part of it was filmed on the Chattooga River. But, um, and there's seven-foot falls, which doesn't sound like much until you're on top of them <laughs> and you're about to go over. Um, but you go through all these really rough patches, whitewater, some of, the, some of the toughest whitewater in the southeast. And then you get to the last little area before it empties out 
into Lake Tigaloo. Lake Tigaloo is man-made, and so it empties out into that, and you've got like a two-mile flat water paddle to be able to get out. But it's kind of funny, the last patch of the actual river is after all those really bad rapids, and the name of it is Quaalude. <laughs> and it is still water. <laughs> Imagine that. Um, you don't appreciate the still waters unless you've been through a rough time. So David is saying, he, he makes me lie down and rest in green pastures and he takes care of me. He leaves me beside the still waters so I can be calm and get a drink. Um, I, just, I, I think this, the imagery in this psalm is really, really neat. So he's leading us to green pastures for food and for rest, to still waters for drink and rest. And it shows us that the good shepherd truly does tenderly care for his flock. Verse 3 starts out, he restores my soul. Spurgeon says this in, in the commentary he wrote for Psalms. He says, when, you're, when our soul grows sorrowful, he revives it. When it is sinful, he sanctifies it. And when it is weak, he strengthens it. We can't restore our own soul. We can't get ourselves out of these situations. Another example, and I apologize for giving you all these different life stories, but uh, about nine years ago, I ran in my first ultra marathon. I don't look like it now, but um, now I, I, it was 30 something miles. Uh, now I run three miles, so a little different. But it's called Stump Jump 50K, so that's 31 miles. And uh, I trained for it, trained really hard, but it was in Chattanooga, Tennessee. You ever been to Chattanooga? It's not flat. There were, it was 31 miles, but it was over a mile of elevation change. That was the hard part. And it was shaped like a lollipop, so it was a little bit more than 10 miles. You ran out the stick, and then it was roughly a little over 10-mile lollipop circle and then you ran back the same way. So I'm running this thing, and Leanne and the girls are, we were staying at a little cabin um, nearby, and uh, I actually thought I was gonna finish based on my training in, in this particular time frame. And so I'm in the restroom right for the start, and these two guys are talking, and it's, been, it's like their 10th year that they've run it, and they're like, oh, we're gonna try to break eight hours. So I went back out and told Leanne, y'all might wanna just stay at the cabin for a while <laughs> and don't rush back here. Um, but uh, I get through this, and the, one of the difficult things about this race was uh, it started out really great. The first five miles on that 10-mile stretch was downhill. Bad part was the last five miles were uphill. So I get through, and I'm 26 miles into this 31-mile race, and all of a sudden my ankle is just killing me. And I'm at the beginning of this five mile climb back up to the top of this mountain. I'm like, what in the world's going on? Cause I, you kinda, if, if y'all have ever run, you kinda get in this like runner's daze. And like I, I saw people fall and I, I don't remember falling. Did I twist my ankle? What's going on? And I looked down and there was this little yellow jacket right here on my foot going tow, 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 tow. Like yellow jackets are different than bees. A bees will sting you once and the stinger gets stuck and then they die. Yellow jackets, they don't ever stop. 
So this is how much I was hurting at this point in the race. I literally had an internal debate. Was it going to be better and less painful to bend over and knock that yellow jacket off or just let him sting me for the next five miles because it was going to hurt if I bent over? Ultimately, I bent over and knocked him off. I still don't know if that was the best move. But I get to the finish of this race, and you've heard the, the joke about, you know, the little kid that's hitting himself in the head, and his parents say, why are you doing that? And he says, well, it feels so good when I stop. <laughs> that's how this race was. Like, I finished this race, and I was so thankful that it was over. Um, I'm like, why, why did I do that? And, but then my body is starting to restore itself, and thankfully, like, I drive a, an an old Xterra, it's a straight drive. Leanne does not drive straight drives. Thankfully, we were not in my Xterra. Or somebody else would have had to do it. I couldn't do it. Like, I couldn't drive an automatic. I was just in pain. The next day was even worse. But my body started to restore itself over time. But here's the thing, that was just physical. That's just my physical body. When we're in a situation where we are drained emotionally and we're struggling with sin in our life, we're struggling with difficult situation. We can't restore ourselves. Only the good shepherd, the Lord, can do that. So that's just a little story that pales in comparison to what God has actually done in restoring me throughout my life. You know, I've been in painful situations that make a 31-mile race seem like nothing because I couldn't help myself out of that situation. Only the Lord could do that. The second part of verse 3 says, He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Um, Robert Frost wrote a poem, and it's pretty famous. It's called The Road Not Taken. And it ends with this last three lines. It, it says, The roads diverge in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Now, if you read that poem, you're like, man, that is so deep. That is just, may, really makes you think. Frost actually wrote that poem as a joke. <laughs> he had a buddy named Edward Thomas, and they would go walking. And Edward was chronically indecisive about which path to take. He would just stress over it. So Frost writes this poem that most people think is just brilliant as a joke. And he actually got mad because he presented it. He, it was some of the poems that he was reading at a university thing. And he actually kind of said, this is a joke. And his body language was, this is a joke. Um, and the students were all like, that is so brilliant. Oh, you're just wonderful. Um, and he's like, it was a joke. I was picking at my friend. But when you think about the paths we take in life, they're not a joke. And many times I've taken the wrong one. If I want to take the right path, the righteous path, I've got to follow the good shepherd because my ways aren't good. And if I want to find the right path, I've got to follow Jesus. So back to that shepherd imagery. Let me tell you a little bit about the nature of a sheep. Um, sheep are actually mentioned over 750 times in Scripture, and there's a reason. Here is the nature of a sheep. Sheep are, by nature, helpless creatures. They, they can't do much on their own. Uh, they depend on shepherds to lead them to water and lead them to pasture. 
Um, they're easy prey for predators because um, they're defenseless. They're easily led astray. They're social animals that gather in flocks. Yet they tend to wander off and fall into a crevice or get caught in a thorn bush. They're prone to getting into trouble that they can't get out of by themselves. Long thought to be dim-witted, they're actually relatively intelligent, just below a pig in the barnyard. Um, but it's that flocking behavior and their quickness to panic and flee and follow the leader that usually requires an experienced shepherd to lead them. And uh, let me apologize if there's any kids in here. I've got to say the S word, but they aren't stupid. <laughs> but they do stupid things without a good shepherd to guide them. So that's sheep. So let me put it into another phrase. Let me read that list again with a slight change. Randy, by nature, is a helpless creature. Randy depends on the Lord to lead him. Randy's easy prey for predators because he can be defenseless. Randy is easily led astray. Randy's a social animal. He doesn't hang out with flocks, but he hangs out with people. But yet, he tends to wander off and get himself into trouble. He gets himself into trouble that he can't get out of by himself. Long thought to be dim-witted. <laughs> He's actually relatively intelligent. <laughs> but it's that behavior and that willingness to sometimes follow the wrong leader that gets him into trouble and makes it a necessity for him to have a good shepherd. And Randy's not stupid, but sometimes he does stupid things when he's not following his good shepherd. Does that sound familiar? I'm sure I'm the only one that fits that. Maybe, maybe not. There's a reason why we're compared to sheep in Scripture. Because without the Lord, we're in trouble. We need Him. The next verse, verse 4 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This isn't just good poetry. David is talking from experience. A couple weeks ago, if you're reading through the Bible reading um, that we've kind of put out there and we send out a, um, a text, no, not a text, it's a, a, a Twitter uh, or Instagram thing that here's what we're doing this week. A few weeks back, we were in 1 Samuel. Let me read something. Um, this is David. He's talking to Saul and he said, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. So David's a shepherd. He knows what he's talking about when he's talking about a good shepherd. When, when there came a lion or a bear I, and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. So David is just, he's a young guy at this point. And he's telling Saul, his king, look, I've gone up against lions and bears, and it wasn't me. It was the Lord that delivered me. Did you catch that one thing? If he rose up against me, I caught him by his beard. You know what's near a lion's beard? His teeth. <laughs> I mean, David had to have confidence that the Lord was going to deliver him. So he mentions the valley of the shadow of death, and this is one of those, uh, a lot of times you'll hear the 23rd Psalm at, at a funeral when someone's passed away. 
But here's David talking about this, the shadow of death, like it, it was probable, but yet the Lord led him through it. So that scripture was actually from the, the story of David and Goliath. So it, uh, it happened that the, the Philistines were encamped on the top of one mountain and the Israelites were encamped on the top of another. And there was a valley in between them, the Valley of Elah. And Saul, who, if you remember, Saul was a head above everybody else in his kingdom. So Saul was a big boy, but there was a bigger boy. This boy named Goliath would come down every day in this valley and he would yell up at the Israelites. And he would say, all right, here's the deal. If one of your boys can come and beat me, it's over. Y'all win. Now. Goliath was a big boy. Scripture um, depends on what, what you're reading. <coughs> you know, the, the um, English Standard Version said he was six span or six cubits and a span tall. Now, a cubit is from here to here, and a span is from there to there. So it's roughly, a cubit's roughly 18 inches, and a span's roughly nine inches. So if he was six cubits and a span, he was nine foot nine feet, nine inches tall, okay? The Dead Sea Scrolls, it actually says that he was four cubits in a span. So that would be six feet and nine inches tall. Both of those are big boys. You know, I'm not sure why there's a discrepancy. It could have been that, um, that the four cubits were measured using Goliath's wrist to elbow. I don't know. But let's just say, let's go with the six, the six cubits in a span, nine feet, nine inches. Let's put it into today's terms. Shaquille O'Neal, retired basketball player, seven foot four, or seven foot one, excuse me. He's 32 inches shorter than a nine foot, nine inch Goliath. Okay. If Goliath was only six foot nine, I, I'm not so sure that that number fits because why was Saul afraid of a guy that probably wasn't that much taller than him? So I am five foot eight. I've never played professional basketball <laughs> at all. I'm 17 inches shorter than Shaquille O'Neal. But when you put it in perspective, I'm closer to Shaquille's height than he is to Goliath's. Goliath, however tall he was, was a big, intimidating boy. But here's what happened. David says, this guy is putting down the Lord and the Lord's people. So I'll go fight him. And he's just a little kid at the time. And so Saul loads him up with all of his, you know, armor and stuff. And it's just, he's not tested in, doesn't feel comfortable. And he's like, I'm good. So he goes down to the stream and he gets the five smooth stones and he's got his little uh, slingshot, which is not the kind I had when I was little. This is a leather pouch, two strings, and you whip it around and let one go. So he's there, and the, it says he goes down and confronts Goliath down in the valley of the shadow of death. So he's not just, it's not just imagery. He's been there. And he says, the Philistine moved forward and came near to David and his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. 
for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the fields. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with a sword and a spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And you know the story. I mean, the story of David and Goliath is the ultimate underdog story. Even if you've never read the Bible, you've heard that story. I was watching college baseball yesterday, and it was Davidson playing Texas A&M, and they literally had a screenshot that said Davidson versus Goliath. I'm like, there it is, even if people don't know. David didn't defeat Goliath. David put his trust in his Lord to deliver him and to deliver the Lord's people from not just Goliath, but the Philistines. So when he was writing about this and being comforted and not fearing evil, it wasn't just good, a good story. He had been there before and he'd walked that before. So David dealt with lions and bears, he dealt with a big old boy named Goliath. And if that wasn't bad enough, his king tried to kill him multiple times. Saul was after him. So these aren't simply words. He's, he's been there before. Verses 5 and 6 kind of shift a little bit now because we've been in this good shepherd mode. And now we're going to shift a little bit into the Lord as our host and our friend, let me read verse 5. It said, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. And that goes back to I can't. I always want to say my cup runneth over because that's how I learned it. Um, but he is, they're talking about this, and some commentators believe that the actual meal in the presence of my enemies is tied to a, the actual event in Second Samuel where David and his men actually have a meal while Absalom, his son, is pursuing him and trying to kill him. Now, whether it's David's talking about an actual event or if he's just saying that here is this greater intimacy, because a shepherd and sheep has a certain level of um, closeness and relationship, but now you're talking about a meal. You're talking about sitting down. You're talking about being together and fellowshipping together. So it's even closer than a sheep and their shepherd. It's that relationship between someone and their Lord on a pretty, pretty intimate level. So he says, preparing a meal in the presence of my enemies, the, our, the, the enemy does not have the power to stop God. If God wants to have a meal, if he wants to take that time, then he's gonna do it. Then he says, you anoint my head with oil this tells us a little bit more about this meal. At that time, it was customary to anoint your guest head with oil for a party, a festival, a celebration. So this isn't just lunch. 
This is a, this is a party. This is celebrating what God has done and delivering them. And also, back to the shepherd um, connection there, sheep, you know, they're not that smart, supposedly. They're helpless. Uh, sheep have their face down all day long. So they get bitten by bugs and, you know, get stung by insects. And they also get bit by snakes in the grass, literally, that'll come up and bite them on the face. And so a good shepherd actually will anoint the sheep's face with oil to help heal those bites and stings. And the last thing was my cup overflows. The Lord's provision for us and for his people, his sheep, it's not just barely enough. It's not just sufficient. It's more than we're ever, ever going to need. In verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That word goodness suggests a steady and consistent kindness and support, the kind of thing you should get from your family. You know, someone who's there for you no matter what. And mercy is actually a covenant word that means steadfast love. So what he's saying here is God's love, God's faithfulness is relentless. It's going to follow me all the days of my life. God wants that relationship with us. And finally it says, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When you think about that, a believer... Um, isn't just staying with the Lord or staying in the Lord's house for a little bit. We're not at God's bed and breakfast where we got to get out by lunch. We're family. As a believer, someone is saved by grace, you're part of God's family, and you're going to dwell in his house forever. So the things that we can bring out of this psalm about the good shepherd are Verses 1 through 3 talks about the shepherd tenderly caring for his sheep. Verse 4 talks about how the shepherd will fiercely protect his flock. And verses 5 and 6 show how the good shepherd faithfully provides for his sheep. So uh, I was actually going to end with the scripture that was read first thing this morning, which is great. And we need to hear it again. Because when you, when you see David talking about the good shepherd through all this, you know, sometimes in the Bible, uh, things aren't super clear. And sometimes it's just unavoidable how obvious it is. And this is one of those times. Because when you look in the scripture, back in John chapter 10, who's the good shepherd? Well, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and he cares nothing for his sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And those weren't just words either. At the end of our worship time every week, we observe communion. Literally remembering 
how our good shepherd laid down his life. We have the juice to remind us of the blood he shed and the bread to remind us of the body that was broken for us. So today, we're excited that you're here. If you're not a believer, we ask that you don't participate because this is a family meal. If you're not a believer, please reach out to me or one of the other elders, Hart, Brad, Ian, um, and find out about how you can have a good shepherd in your own life. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your words that David wrote so many years ago. Father, we, we can't do it alone. We, we need you. We're desperate. Just like a sheep is helpless, Father, we're helpless. We cannot save ourselves. And Father, we can't make it through life without you. I just pray that we will be diligent in following you, that we'll listen to your voice, that we'll follow your lead. And Father, that we will love you and try to reflect the love that you have for each one of us. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.